Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9. We continue our study there. We've been working our way through Hebrews now for the last couple of months. And hopefully the Lord is giving uh, you some instruction in who Jesus is, growing you in worship for him as we go through this, um, this letter. It certainly has been the case for me. Let me pray. And uh, we're actually going to end up covering uh, all of Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your kindness toward us. We thank you, Lord, for how you call us to yourself. Even when we were enemies and in rebellion against you, you pursued us. You came after us. You would not leave us to ourselves. Jesus Christ came into the world to give his life for those who don't deserve grace, but you so delight in giving it. You are a merciful and kind God. And we pray this morning that you would use the time in your word to draw us in love with your son. He is infinitely worthy, as we sang, of praise. And so, God, inside of our hearts this morning, would you well up inside of us praise, for he is worthy of it. And I pray that uh, as we walk out of this place today, we will not leave our praise here, but that it would continue with us to say he is worthy. Oh, he is worthy. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Do you all remember the game Simon? The game Simon. I, I walked downstairs in the children's area a couple of weeks ago, and there was a kind of new version, I guess, of Simon. I saw some of the sharp kids back there playing, and it's like you stick your hand in it, I guess. There's like a, an area that, you know, it's just a new way of doing what used to be the disc that we had that had four colors on it, and it would light up in different places and repeat certain tones, and you had to repeat it back to it. Y'all remember that? Yeah. It could be kind of a challenging game, can it not? You know, and so the idea of the game was that it would repeat a certain pattern or it give you a certain pattern. You repeat it back, and then it would add one more tone to the very end of it for you to do next time. And you just kept on going until you didn't get it right. You know, and maybe you compete with your friends to see who would be able to last the longest. These last few weeks have seemed something like that to me. It's mostly the same subject material each week. But each week, there's just a little more that is added to it. We've been talking a lot about priests and sacrifices and temples and blood. And so it may seem today that we're covering similar ground, but it is not just repetition. And so like the game Simon, more is being added to the pattern that we are being taught. There's another layer there for us to show us the brilliant plan of God and how wonderful our Savior Jesus is. So there are going to be parts of chapter 9 here that I'm not going to spend as much time on, but there are going to be some new pieces to it that are added to what we've already seen in previous weeks. So I'm going to take this in chunks. Uh, I'm going to read starting off verses 1 through 10. So look with me at Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 10. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, 
having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. And so these first 10 verses can be split into two halves. Verses 1 through 5, they describe the earthly place of worship. The earthly place of worship and the things that were inside that earthly place of worship. So they tell us about some of those things that made up the tabernacle and later on the temple. And some of you here this morning may be very familiar with the language that's being used here. If you're very familiar with the Old Testament, then you probably have heard these things before. What was in the tabernacle of God in the various places inside of that tent? But some of you, maybe you aren't very familiar with some of this language. And so what you need to know is, is that when Israel was being led out of Egypt, when they were being saved by God there in the Old Testament called the Exodus, they went through the wilderness land on the way to the promised land. God was saving them out of this place, and he was taking them over to this place, a place that he said was flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. And when those people would set up their camp on the way, God's tent, the place of his dwelling, the tabernacle, would be right there in the middle of all of those various tribes. So that was the tabernacle, which literally means tent. Later on, under Solomon, that temporary place that could be taken down and set up, they built a temple, a permanent structure there on the mountaintop in Jerusalem to be there forever for God's people to come to the place of worship. In these verses right here, Hebrews is telling us about some of the things that were inside of that tabernacle. So imagine a large rectangular tent, and it's divided into two sections. The first section, we are told, the priests would be able to walk into this place. They did so regularly. It was called the holy place, the holy place. And in that room where the lamp stand, the table, there was freshly baked bread in there, the priests would walk into this place daily. But on the other side of the curtain, it was called the most holy place. Maybe you've heard it called the holy of holies. In that second section, the main object in that room was the ark, the ark of the covenant. And inside the ark were the Ten Commandments that Moses had carved. Aaron's budding staff, if you remember his staff, budded and bloomed. That was kept there. And also an urn that was filled with some of the manna to represent the fact that God had provided for his people there in the wilderness all that time. Right here in this section, we are just briefed on the bare necessities. He says there in verse 5, we do not have much time to spend on all of these details. So then we will not spend much time on those details either. Verses 6 through 10. 
Those verses tell us about the duties of the priests for worship, what they did when they went inside of those tents. As I said, that first half of the tent was gone into on a regular basis. They would, the priests would go in there, they'd trim the wicks, make sure that the lights stayed burning. They would set out like that. But on the other side of the curtain, in the back half of the tabernacle, this was entered into only one time out of the year on the Day of Atonement. That is what is known as Yom Kippur. Maybe you know that is, uh, it takes place very early in the fall still. One priest would go into that most holy place. He was known as the high priest. And he would offer up blood on the top of the ark. In between those two cherubim that were looking at each other, he would sprinkle blood on top of what is known as the mercy seat. First for himself. And then again he would do so for the sins of the people. And when he would come out of the tabernacle, he would walk out. All of the people would know that the blood was received. That God had received the sacrifice for their sins and they were cleansed for another year. But he says something interesting here in verses 8 and 9. Maybe you picked up on it when I was reading it. He says, as long as the earthly tabernacle is still being used, it shows that the way into heaven, the holy place, is not yet opened. It's here that we get one of those extra Simon tones. An extra layer is being added here to what we've already been taught. More depth, more color. I think one of our modern expressions is helpful here. Maybe one that you use. It's, you can't see the forest for the trees. You know what that means, right? You get so focused on the details that you lose sight of the big picture. And it's always important to keep the big picture in mind. And so the question comes, what is the big deal about all of these sacrifices and the priests and the temple? What was the purpose of all this to begin with? We might get so focused on all the details that he's going over in here that we forget why it was all being done. What was the point of all of that? Why a temple? Why blood? Why priests? Why is it important that people's sins are forgiven? The aim of the sacrificial system is to bring people into the presence of God. That's the whole point. Now, we might get so focused on the fact that we just need our sins forgiven, we forget why we need our sins forgiven. It was so that we can enter into the presence of God forever. We're, we're barred from his presence because of our sin. But God wants us with himself. He wants people to stand before him. He wants to be in the midst of his people without being hindered from them because of their sin. And so the sacrificial system was set up for that very reason. Adam and Eve, if you remember, they lived in the presence of God in a kind of temple called the Garden of Eden. That's what it was. It was a garden temple. And but their sin, when they sinned, their sin cast them out. They had to leave the presence of God. And so how is it possible for a sinful people to enter back in? How can they get back in there? Priests, sacrifices, temples, all of that stuff that deals with sin so that a people can stand once again before a holy God. 
And so that high priest who went into the Holy of Holies on that one day out of the year, he served as a kind of representative of mankind. And he entered in behind the curtain for mankind. Only one man could do it. But don't we all long to be there? That's what he's representing. He stood there on behalf of all of those people who said, I want to be there too in the presence of my God. And he only got a few minutes there because of the blood that was offered. But that high priest, he represented a promise that man would be able to come before the Lord much more fully than he was able to someday in the future. Not temporarily, though, but eternally. That's what he was doing when he stepped into that place. There was a promise from God that someday people will stand before him and not just for a couple of minutes. So all of that repetition, all of that ritual was there to point forward to something that was much better to come in an age that was still yet to come. And that's why we're told here in Hebrews that the stuff of that first earthly tabernacle is symbolic for the present age. And so as long as those priests and all as long as that high priest goes in there offering up animal blood in that place, that was like the first age was still standing. People can't yet get into the real holy place. It was just a symbol. But look at verse 11. Look at what we're told here about Jesus. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, so we're not still dealing with the previous age and all those previous sacrifices. When he came, he brought a new age into this world. Heaven has broken in to the world that we live in. When Jesus Christ came, the kingdom has come with him. So when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, it's a tent that's not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So what he's saying here is, is that what Christ came to do is so much better than what all those other priests did temporarily. Jesus secured an eternal redemption, not a once-a-year redemption. And all-time redemption is what he came to bring to us. So his ministry had nothing to do with the earthly tabernacle that was up there on top of Jerusalem, the copies of the things to come. He brought in a ministry that dealt with the things of the future. So that Ark of the Covenant, it represented the realities of heaven. It actually represented the throne of God. Jesus did not go into the earthly holy of holies. He went into the real thing, into the presence of God. Not offering up animal blood, but offering up what that animal blood pointed toward, something perfect, something that would cleanse all the way down into the heart. One of the criticisms that Jesus gave to the Pharisees, and he gave several, was that they kept a clean appearance on the outside. 
If you remember, the Pharisees had a lot of rituals that they went through to demonstrate they were going to be pure in some way. So they washed their hands a lot. There were a lot of other kinds of washings that they did. But Jesus said that they do a really good job of keeping themselves clean on the outside in appearance before the Lord. But inwardly, he said they were like tombs on the inside where dead man's bones lived. So they looked good. They went through all the rituals. They did all the right things. But on the inside, there was death. Jesus said to them that it's not the outside of a man that makes him unclean. It's what's going on on the inside. And so those washings could not reach down into those men's hearts. They could wash their hands 50 times a day, wash their bodies over and over again, but it could never get down into the heart and clean this, the dirt that's in here. That was the problem. And neither could those sacrifices. That animal blood that was being offered up there in the temple and the tabernacle, that was not effective blood. It was just a ritual that spoke of something better that was yet to come. Blood that would be powerful enough to bring about a real washing of a man's guilt. Wipe it away. Blood that would really cleanse my heart. That's what he's saying there in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered up himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So if they, they thought that those animals that were killed up there brought about something, how much more and how much greater is the blood of Jesus Christ? It was not stained in any way. It had no shortcomings at all. That is a cleansing blood that was offered up on behalf of the people. The transition that we see between verses 1 through 10 in verses 11 through 14, they show us how all of that ritual under the Old Covenant was always meant, its purpose was always meant to point us to a perfect sacrifice that we really needed. It was just a prefiguring. And I've used this illustration before, but I do think it's helpful that if this door was open right here into this room and there are lights out there and somebody is approaching, what will you see before that person actually gets into the room? You'll see their shadow. Shadows come first. Then the person. And so the sacrifices, temple, all of those things were shadows of the one who was to come. Of the perfect sacrifice that was still yet to be made. They tell us something better is coming. That's what these people should have known. They should have known that animals would never wash away their sins. They needed something far better than that. And so here Jesus, we're told, has gone here first into this heavenly temple, into the real holy of holies. That's where he's gone as our forerunner, the first one, the first man to go where nobody else has gone before. And I'm not a Trekkie. Maybe some of you all are. But I thought of the catchphrase from Star Trek here that says, boldly going where no man has gone before. That's what Jesus has done. He's boldly gone into the most holy place, offering up himself there. He's the first man into the presence of God. And what it does, it speaks of the truth that it is now possible 
because of what he has done for more men, pure men, righteous men, holy men and women of God, that they can now follow him there. That man can now stand in the presence of God and be acceptable. Because Jesus is there right now and he was not cast out. It says that I can go and be there with him. If I have trusted in him and believe that his blood washes me clean, he has made a sacrifice that is acceptable to God. And we now belong in the presence of God with him again. Adam and Eve were tossed out. Jesus has gone in. And he's going to bring a people back with himself to be where he now is. So can you see why we are being remade by the Spirit of God into the image of Christ? It's the only way home. It's the only way that we can find our way back into the presence of God where he now is. The following verses here, verses 15, really to 22, but let's just say 15 to 25, I'm going to read those, and I'm just going to tell you on the front end that these verses are a little bit confusing, and I'm going to do my best just to try to simplify and kind of cut to the chase and get to the point. But let me read these verses, and maybe you'll see what I'm talking about. It says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. So here we are being told a lot about death, the necessity of death, about blood, and about covenants. All of these things are intermixed with one another. And there is a lot of uh, language here that is disputed. Even the translation of these verses is disputed. And so again, I'm just going to try to be as clear as I can, as best as I understand it. And here's one of the main points right here. That Jesus' death, it serves as the full payment for the sins that were committed under the first covenant. And the blood that initiates the new covenant. So it reaches back and it reaches forward. That's what we're being told here. The first half of verse 15 follows what we see there in verses 11 through 14, just that Jesus' death and his perfect blood, it opens up the way of eternal life with God under a new covenant for a people of faith. But then the second half starts to deal with all of these other things. It takes us back 
to all of those sins that were committed under the Mosaic law by the people of God. So he says, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Maybe you know something about ancient covenants. We don't really do this anymore. We do make covenants, do we not? We have marriage covenants. Uh, we have contracts that we have with, with one another where people are agreeing to a couple of different sides of an equation. When you get married, you're both committed to the vows that you make, right? That is a covenant. But in the Old Testament or in the ancient days, covenants were often made between two parties. When, they were doing, when, when that happened, animals would be killed and blood would be spilled to initiate or start that covenant. And so Israel's covenant started that way under Moses. That's what we see there in verse 18 when he references after the commandments were given. And if you go back to Exodus chapter 24, you'll read this. After Moses gave the Ten Commandments to the people, he gathered all the people together, they killed some animals, and they flung blood on them, demonstrating that a covenant was beginning. And all the, the tabernacle itself and all the things in the tabernacle, it was all sprinkled with blood, consecrating it and saying that it was this new covenant that was beginning between God's people and him. That was the initiation rite, blood. But Israel's covenant with God was not only initiated with blood, it wasn't just started with blood, it was maintained with blood. So it wasn't a once-for-all sacrifice. It started with a bunch of blood, of bulls and goats killed and flung on the people, and now every year those people needed more blood from bulls and goats to be shed on their behalf. They were maintained in that covenant by blood. And so their ongoing sins were said to be forgiven by the blood of more bulls and goats that were going to have to be killed. And those animals, they represented what those people deserved. They deserved the death. They, those animals, they stood in the place of the sinner. They received the curse of sin. That's death. But those animals that died, they were never a sufficient ransom. They were never a sufficient payment for the sins that had been committed by God's people. People who are made in the image of God, sinning against a holy and infinite God. They could never pay for that. Animals did not break God's law. The people did. So human death is what was required for those believing people. That's what had to take place. Under the old covenant to be set free from the death that they deserved, these people needed the death of another man. They needed the death of a perfect man in their place. So this is what Jesus came to do. He came to die as that perfect lamb in the place of those people. And so his death on the cross, it reaches back it reaches back and pays the price of the transgressions that those people under that first covenant committed fully. That animal blood back there didn't do it. Jesus came to do it in their place. And his perfect death then reaches forward. It reaches forward to pay for the ongoing sins of the people of God under this new covenant. And so Jesus' death serves as a kind of bridge between the two. First covenant to the second covenant. 
He was the fulfillment of all those sacrifices in the temple and the tabernacle, those thousands and thousands and thousands of dead animals, what they represented. Jesus came to do once for all in their place. But he is also the initiation sacrifice that starts a new and better covenant. Does that make sense? His death covers the sins under the first covenant, but his death also covers the sins that are going to be committed under the new covenant. But he is no mere animal, is he? That old covenant started with that animal blood sprinkled all over everything, but the new covenant, it begins with a death of infinite worth, which means it can cover what? Infinite sin. Animal blood couldn't do that. And he offered up that blood in the holy of holies. That's what we're told there in verse 23 and 24. He didn't come to die and sprinkle his blood on the copies of the heavenly things. He entered not into the holy places made with hands, the stuff that the Israelites had made and made into the tabernacle. He didn't enter into that place, which are copies of the true things. He entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. His sacrifice initiates a new and better covenant for God's people that truly brings them into His presence. So Jesus, He takes the curse of sin on Himself in advance. So when He died at the cross, He took the curse of our sin in advance of us committing those sins once for all time so that all those people who have faith in him will receive, it is guaranteed, they will receive the promised inheritance of blessing with him in his land, always in his presence. That is a guarantee now for the people of God. And that's a guarantee for you. That's why it says he has appeared on our behalf in the presence of God. So Jesus, where he now is in the Holy of Holies, is proof that men can now dwell with God again. He took our curse. He took our curse on himself, the curse of death. And he was not cast away. But because his offering was accepted and perfect, he now lives in the joy of the Father's presence where we are now guaranteed that we will not be cast away either. Do you ever have thoughts like that? Concerns like that? That you will not be accepted? I still have some of those doubts that come into my mind from time to time. How is it possible that God would receive a sinner like myself? Does he know all the things that I've done? Does he see what's going on inside of my heart? Do you ever have thoughts like that? But brothers and sisters, we don't trust in ourselves. I don't trust in myself and what I have done. I don't earn anything with God. My hope is that Jesus Christ has done everything on my behalf. And because he has offered up himself and he has lived perfectly and obediently in my place, he's done it all. He gives to me what I do not deserve. And that's perfect righteousness. So I need to be reminded again and again and again that it's what he has done and it is because he has offered up himself that I am received in the heavenly holy of holies by God. That is such a comfort. 
It's when the evil one reminds you and of all that you've done in the past and all of the things that cause you to doubt. You simply are looking at Jesus Christ. Stop looking at yourself. He's saying that I have paid for every one of those sins. Every one. You don't get to reserve any of them to yourself. You don't have to carry any of those with you into the heavenly holy of holies. Christ has offered up his blood to cleanse you of each and every one. We look to him. We trust in him. We trust in the Lord with all of our heart, and we do not lean on our own understanding or on our own righteousness. No, not at all. It's Christ. Every bit of it. From beginning to end, it is all Jesus. That's the only reason why I and you can be accepted in the throne room of God. This is good news. You know what's bad news? Bad news is when I'm trying to gauge if I'm good enough. Am I good enough? What's the mark that I have to hit? Do I have to be 51% good? 49% not? Is that how God grades us? 80? You know, I always wanted at least an 80 in school, right? Anything below that, just, oh, you know, I'm down there in the D territory, starting to get close to F. And I don't know about kids today, the scale has moved. But anything below a 70 when I was a kid was failing. They've slid that down a little bit, I think. But either way, what is required in the presence of God? He requires perfection, 100%. A plus, 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 plus. He requires that to be in his presence, So it's bad news if I'm told that I just have to be better than my neighbor. Or it's bad news if you look at the news feed and you're thinking, well, I'd never do that. I'd never do that, so I must be better than them and maybe more acceptable than them. No. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, each and every one of us. And the only news that is good is that Jesus Christ has done everything for us. Every bit. He came to earth to perfectly obey God the Father in everything. He successfully overcame every temptation that came to him in the wilderness. Where Israel failed, Jesus did not. When Satan came to tempt Jesus to doubt the word of God, he succeeded where Adam did not. He was perfect. So when I'm trusting in him, I'm looking at all that he did for me, cleansing me, obeying for me, everything in my place, not looking at myself anymore. And I praise God for that because I would fail and I would be cast into the depths of hell. And so would you. But because of Christ, we are welcomed in. That's why Paul uses this language so often in the New Testament about being in Christ. There's so much packed into that statement. He literally means that the church of Jesus Christ is in Jesus in a way, in his orb, in his sphere. You've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, but you have been transferred into the kingdom of light. And what is that? That's Christ. Christ is the kingdom of light. You have been placed in him. So when he enters into the heavenly holy of holies, he carries with him all the people of God. You're in him. You're with him. That's why you are acceptable, and that's why it's such good news. And that is why we come here and sing songs in the morning like, is he worthy? He's worthy, not me. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to you be the glory. Only he is worthy, and that's why we praise him. He makes us acceptable to walk into the presence of a holy 
God. Think about that. You will someday stand before the Lord. Like, I just can't fathom that. Can't fathom that. You'll stand in his presence. And you will not have any righteousness to toss to him. Here's my offering, Lord. Here's what I have. This is what I did. Am I worthy? No. You know that the righteousness that you have has been given to you. And every gain and every crown and everything that's good that has been given to you, you will toss those to him. Because you will be able to say, only one is worthy, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way that I can stand before you, O holy God, is because of what he has done. That he welcomes us in. We get grace. That's the essence of grace. Getting what you do not deserve and receiving, receiving what you do not deserve. Because God delights to do it for sinners like us through His Son. Look at these last three verses with me. Starting with the second half of verse 26. Let's read those. It says, But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We're being told here that sin has finally, once for all, been dealt with. It's been done, crucified, killed in the death of Jesus Christ. That once-for-all language, that once, that offered-once language in verse 28, we're being told that nothing else is required. It's all been paid for. Your ransom, your payment has been made in full. You owe nothing. You owe nothing to God because of the all-sufficient death of Christ. See the language there in verse 27. It says, just as it is appointed for man to die once, And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, though. That's not what he's coming back for. Why? Because Jesus dealt with sin once for all at his first coming. That was the point of him coming that first time. He took the judgment of sin at his death. So when he returns a second time, he's not coming back to deal with sin again. It's done. Nothing left to do. All taken care of. Judgment is over. The second coming of Jesus, we're being told, will be to bring the people of God into the presence of God with himself. Not dealing with sin. He's already took that curse. All we have left to do is receive the blessing when he returns. This takes the sting out of death. This takes the sting out of death because Christ has already taken it. He's received judgment. That's why it says here, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. We often say that, and it is true for every person outside of Christ. But you need to understand that at your death, there is no judgment left for you because Jesus came to take it for you. 
So the only expectation that you have left is blessing, is joy in the presence of God. You need not fear anymore. Jesus came to kill your fear of death because the judgment of God has been appeased. It's gone. So it is appointed for man to die once, then the judgment. But the man, the man did die once. And he took the judgment. And we look forward to the joy that he's going to bring with him on that second return. And what do we say there with the end of the book of Revelation? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Under the old covenant, on the day of atonement, that high priest would make his way through that first section of the tent. And I just, again, a moment ago, we were thinking about how or I was thinking about how, I guess somewhat nervous or concerned that I would think I would be as I stand before God. I'm going to be some nerves there, I would think, right, in some ways, even though I'm trusting in the blood of Jesus. Can you imagine this high priest on that one day out of the year as he entered into the tent? He only gets a few minutes in there. He walks through the Holy of Holies where He's, he's seen or the, the holy place, I mean, where he's seen that every day. He knows what it looks like in there, and he's approaching that curtain. And he knows that there's a certain way that he has to offer up the blood. He goes back there with a messed up heart and messes everything up. He might drop dead back there behind that curtain. Because he's going back there to stand truly in the presence of God, representing heaven. But he's going to walk into this place where he's told the glory of God dwells above those cherubim. Man, I'd have been shaken trying to put that blood out there. Everything had to be done just so. And imagine all the people outside of the temple. What are they doing? They're waiting. They're watching. They want to know that their sin is being dealt with that they can be accepted by God for one more year. Their sins can be cleansed. And they knew their priest was there in the Holy of Holies, and he's offering up blood for them at that moment. The tension would have been in the crowd, waiting to see if he would come back out. And when he did, his return gave them assurance that they were accepted by the Lord. And that their sins were covered. And so brothers and sisters, I think this is what we're getting at here in this last verse. How much more do we await the return of our high priest? Do we have an anticipation inside of us? Do we think like this? He's gone into the heavenly tent. That's what we're being told here. That's where he's at. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, having offered up his blood. And because he has stayed there, we are assured that we are accepted by God. So that when he comes back out of that tent for us, we can follow our high priest back into the presence of God always. We are accepted because Christ is accepted. And this should build an eager expectation for him to return from the tent where he now is to come back out for God's people. 
got two closing applications for us. They kind of both tie into this particular point right here. Number one, we should persevere in faith. Persevere in faith. Understand that Jesus has already done all the heavy lifting for us. He's already accomplished it all. You are not left to do anything to earn your salvation except look to him. And when you look to him, yes, you will live differently. But even by what you do, you are not earning anything with God. It has all been earned by Jesus. Persevere in faith. Do not give in to the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus has overcome your sin. He promises to give his strength to you so that you can overcome the temptations that come into your life this week. And they will come, will they not? You are so much closer to glory than you know. It is drawing near. Do not give up and throw in the towel now. Jesus has done it all. Look to him. Number one, persevere in the faith. Secondly, look for Jesus' return. Look for Jesus' return and live like he could come back at any moment. That's the way we're called to live. Always watching. He's currently in the tent. That part is done. All that is left is the second coming. Love the thought of his coming and eagerly wait on it. Do you ever think like that? And do you ever feel as though he'll never come back? We're promised that he will. We're promised that he will. We're promised that he's currently in the tent. Again, that's faith. We're trusting in the word of God more than our feelings. So no matter what we feel about this, we are told by God our Savior will return for his people. And he will gather you up and bring you back with himself into the new Garden of Eden. It is the better and perfect Garden of Eden. And the only thing that separates you right now from that is either your own death or the return of your Savior. That's it. So in summary, this is the last statement, the summary of our time together this morning. Jesus boldly went where no man has gone before to perform his priestly duty once for all so that he could bring a forgiven people back with him someday into the presence of God to live with him forever and ever and ever. Are you looking for it? Are you trusting in it? Persevere, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We ask, God, that you would plant the word into our hearts and bear fruit from it. But if we see anything from this text, it is simply that Jesus Christ is there in the Holy of Holies with you right now. His offering has been accepted. And because his offering is accepted, we are accepted. And he says he will come back for us. A world that is broken, and as we sang earlier this morning, is groaning right now. We are awaiting a new creation 
And Jesus will bring it all back with himself. We look for him. Give us hearts that eagerly anticipate this. And lead us, God, to live in light of that truth. Live as a holy people. A people who love Jesus Christ more than the world. And our lives reflect that. Make us godly disciples in this present age of darkness. Make us stand apart from the world that we live in. I pray, God, that people would know us by the love that we have for one another because it is Christ's love. Use us in this place to draw more and more people to a Savior like this who is willing to come and offer up himself once for all for us. Give us faith. Strengthen us. I have to imagine in this room this morning, Lord, there are people who are shaky in their faith. They are doubtful. They are wavering. They are hurting. They are lost. And we ask, God, that you would put your word in them and strengthen them to follow behind Jesus all the way to the promised land. The wilderness road may seem long, but in the grand scheme of things, when they look back, they will see that it was just light and momentary. Lord, we look forward to your kingdom. We look forward to being surrounded constantly with your love. We look forward to Jesus and his return. We trust all of these things into your hands and believe that you will bring to completion the things that you have started in us. Strengthen your people, O Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.